everyone. Welcome to Security Confidential. This is Manoj Tandon, and today we have another very special guest, uh, Dakota Ray. And Dakota has been in sales and marketing for quite some time, and she has a great resume. Uh, she was the youngest employee at the now number one IT security firm in North America, the Herchevik Group. Dakota was later public in Robert Herchevik's best-selling novel, The Will to Win. And for those of you for whom the name may not be familiar, Robert is one of the sharks on Shark Tank. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's quite an accomplishment. And then Dakota later moved on to a mid-sized tech integrator as director of strategic accounts, where she sold the largest deal in the company's 15-year history. The firm was later acquired by MNP. Dakota started Equation Sales in 2017, as she recognized a major gap in the industry for salespeople of the hunter mentality. EQ, Equation Sales, focuses on lighting revenue and reputation on fire for tech companies globally. Welcome to the show, Dakota. Glad to have you <laughs> Fantastic. here. Fantastic, Manoj. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Let's, yeah, let's do let's, it. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, we know you're very successful because you, in fact, successfully sold us. So uh, <laughs> in, in full disclosure, uh, we're a client of Dakota's and uh, she's been integral to uh, the digital marketing program here at Dark Rhino. And uh, we're just uh, very glad that she's with us and we're very glad to have her here. Fantastic. Yes, very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So Dakota, I got to ask the question. I mean, you sure. can't bring up a name like Robert Herchevik and then not <laughs> ask a, you know, some kind of a celebrity type question here. Of course. No, no, go for it. What was it like working with him? Sure. Yeah. No, Robert. I mean, listen, as, as mentioned, I, I started my career at that company um, and it was my first opportunity to learn um, anything and everything about business and more importantly about entrepreneurship, which I know we're going to touch on a little bit today. Uh, Robert, I mean, if there was one word for me to describe Robert, it would be ruthless, um, where I don't necessarily think people correlate that word in Robert based on, uh, you know, the the uh, episodes of Shark Tank, where he's very endearing. Um, and, he, and he absolutely is. But I think there's another side of him as there's another side to all of us. Um, where there's a time for seriousness and there's a time for play and fun. And so I think uh, in terms of why the business was able to grow as quickly as it has and why it's now one of the market leaders uh, is because of his approach to business and, and leadership in that, um, you know, he really led by example and was somebody who really pushed his team towards excellence. Um, and that was something that was embedded kind of in day one. And so I learned a ton from him about work ethic um, you know, as well, I remember a, a few scenarios of going into the office very early because I uh, started my career in marketing there okay. and then pivoted into sales pretty quickly because I realized, well, that's where actually where the money is. And so I, I pivoted there <laughs> pretty quickly. But um, I, I was when I started in marketing and I was hosting events for the organization from a lead gen perspective and I would go in early to set up some of those and I would, you know, at six in the morning go in and he would have already, you know, been in, went through emails, did a 5K run, ate breakfast. Um, so getting his day quite started quite earlier before, you know, any of us are rolling out of bed. And so that was something that uh, I took away uh, during my time at, at, at the Hertzbeck Group. So he, he was a great guy, um, you know, to, to work with, to learn from. And, uh, you know, it's good to see that the business is still thriving. 
And, and do you think uh, that his, you saw it firsthand with him, but maybe there were employees there that were a little bit more removed from him. Sure. But did his mindset and his ethic actually was, were they able to cascade down to other parts of the organization that may not necessarily interact with him? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I think to, to the organ to the folks that work there today, and it's now hundreds and hundreds of employee count, I think they're, right. they're quite removed in some respects. But luckily enough, I was able to start at the business when I believe there were 22 people. And I sat oh. right outside of his office. And, and I was reported to him at one point directly. So I, I did get the opportunity uh, to learn right, you know, the trickle down effect right away versus some of the other people who were a little more removed. And so I think, yeah, he was somebody who we, we hosted these pretty, uh, he hosted these pretty impactful kickoffs, Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4 kickoffs, um, where he would get up on stage and kind of rally everybody together um, and get everybody towards the common goal. So that's where, you know, at some points people thought, oh, some of the things that he's doing doesn't make sense, or they were kind of controversial, or, you know, maybe we shouldn't go down that route, and we were acquiring different businesses, and people didn't understand it, but I think the one other thing I took away from him was he was going to do what he was going to do, regardless of how anybody else felt about it, <laughs> um, and I think that's true leadership in a lot of ways, in the sense of, you know, going with your gut feel, knowing what's right, um, it's his name and business on the brand, so it, you know he's going to do yep. what he wants to do, and you're either in or you're you're in the way. It, it's kind of that simple. And I can completely respect that because mm -hmm. uh, we have a few elements of that going on in our <laughs> in our own company. But it, you're absolutely right. Unless your name is on the door, it's very hard to know what that is like. Yes, and, exactly. And you know that actually gets to a thing of mindset. Right. Sure. And, and you characterized yourself as a sales hunter. And mm -hmm. I and I think uh, before this podcast, I briefly mentioned I've had several sales jobs and, and mm -hmm. I fortunately or unfortunately always ended up in that sales hunting role where it was sure. always about net new business, mm -hmm. uh, trying to find fresh clients. And that I think is one of the singularly the hardest things to do in any organization. It's a non. 100%. You have been now a sales hunter and an entrepreneur, both. Sure. What What do you think is the difference between the mindset of the two? Yeah, no, it's funny. That's a great question. And I think, you know, this is relevant for anybody in business, uh, trickle down, anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur and then anybody in sales. Like I think this topic is so important. Um, because I think, you know, being of the hunter mentality, and I'll kind of give the example for folks who maybe don't know what we're talking about, um, you know, from a sales perspective, when you're looking to hunt down new logos or new business into the uh, revenue into the organization, there's kind of two approaches and there's something called farming and there's something called hunting. And so farmers are people who, uh, who potentially we envied along the way. <laughs> yeah, very um, much so. I always thought that was a cushy job and I always wondered how the heck do you get that gig? Yeah, not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have to be really, you just do a really shitty job at hunting and then maybe you get, you get the farming. <laughs> maybe then they give you it, I'm not sure. Um, but on the farming side, you're kind of more of an account manager uh, where you're, you know, meeting with clients, it's more of the relationship building, so to speak, right. and looking for opportunities that are existing, where the hunter is looking down, you know, knocking down new doors for new business, new logos, et cetera. And I always found that that was an area 
that uh, I did well in, but I think it dotted line back to just my competitive nature um, and that I you know, played a ton of sports uh, growing up uh, at the national level, both rugby and, and basketball. And so I felt that with that, um, I was a natural competitor. And so being, you know, being put in sales and then saying, oh, you know, kind of sit around or go out and get new business, naturally I fell into that uh, bucket. And, uh, and there was just more money in that bucket. So, the, so I went there. Um, and then in that respect, I think from a hunting mentality and entrepreneurship, I think there's a ton of similarities in that people need to appreciate that uh, being an entrepreneur, it's not a job, a part-time job. Right. Um, it's a full-time job. It's a 24 by 7, 365, 36, you know, 5.55. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, never, it never stops. Um, and I think it's one of those things that I learned at least early on, even I'll go back to Herchevac quickly. When I started there, I was taught that even within the organization, even as a salesperson or a marketing executive, truly, I was an entrepreneur of my own book of business. And I was and I was responsible for my own book of business and was given the autonomy to do so. And I think that taught me and gave me the framework to then, you know, venture off eventually and start my own business. And so I was given the opportunity where a lot of people, I think, early on in a lot of their careers, whether it be in cybersecurity or in IT or when, uh, any other facet, maybe aren't given as much autonomy. So I was given, a, I was, I started in a pretty unique position. And so I'm thankful for that. But I think that has a lot to do with it as well. One, one thing I noticed as you were speaking is a fundamental underlying common denominator that, that I hear you speak that you haven't said but i think is there is that you're very uncomfortable very comfortable with getting out of your comfort zone for sure absolutely right? getting into a sales hunting role which is a very uh uncomfortable position in many ways because you're right you you are on your own you are very much on your own mm -hmm. in, in that playing field so mm -hmm. being comfortable with getting out of your comfort zone seems to be a key character trait that might have lended itself to your success and quite possibly maybe it's something that other folks who out there who are listening to this podcast uh should consider as part of their repertoire Absolutely. you know don't, don't go with the comfortable yeah yeah a hundred percent and try new things because the worst you could do is fail and then you move on <laughs> so well see that's so easy to say but that fear of failure and fear of mm -hmm. rejection is a very self-limiting concept it is. it is yeah it is it is i remember the first time i was um you know given a like a book of a book of numbers to uh reach out to and just call and dial for dollars and uh i had never cold called before like ever I, and I'm thinking, oh my God, what if somebody hangs up on me? Like, oh my goodness, what if somebody tells me, you know, whatever? And I was nervous initially starting off. And then, um, you know, my boss at the time just said, well, what's the worst thing that, that could happen? They could hang up on you. I'm like, I know. And they're like, yeah. And then you dial and call somebody else. <laughs> like just normalize failure and that it's going to happen in some respects. And then just being able, it's not, it's not the kick in the ass because you're going to get kicked. It's just get up and get up quickly. And that's really, I think, what it's about. That, that is absolutely a mindset to go with. For uh, sure. You, can't, you, you have to uh, be willing to take that risk and, and it's okay to fail. Mm -hmm. And like one of the things we have done at Dark Rhino yeah. is we don't encourage failure by any means. <laughs> but we have said, 
that you know our our team members they can fail safely if there is mm -hmm. something that they want to try or they really believe is the right thing to do for a client yep. by all means propose it and mm -hmm. and try it yeah. It may not always work, but you very likely could stumble upon something that is very meaningful. And that is how we've actually built some of our service offerings. And we learned Absolutely. the hard way. You know, we screwed some things up and we did some things amazingly well. And the things that we did amazingly well, we looked at, well, what are we doing here? And let's build on that and exactly. forget about the other stuff. That's exactly. But like, let, let's look at our space, in, in, for instance, in the kind of tech startup scale-up space, I mean, I think according to Forbes, almost 91 or 90% of, of, of startups fail, right? And and so, and why is that? Because right. they went for it, they tried something and then they gave it their all and they pivoted and maybe it didn't work out and they're on to the next project. Like, I don't know if people are as aware of that as maybe you and I are in that because we're in the space, but um, the failure rate is high it, it, because it's real, it happens. It very much, and but how much of that is actually warranted? Exactly, and I think that, and when you look at, you know, a lot of the money that's pumped into some of these businesses, the millions and millions and millions, I mean, we're bootstrapped, so I haven't raised any money for my business, but when I think about, you know, all the millions of dollars out there that's being flowed to some of these tech startups and scale-ups, why are they failing? Because they're not using the money appropriately. Money's barely the issue. They get the money, it's the know-how, it's, to your point, what are you bucketing the money to? And then how effectively is the people behind making those money decisions? <laughs> and, where, um, right? and where the rubber meets the road is exactly where you're at. Are you getting, is this something that clients are willing to pay for? Are exactly. you able to convince the market that they should buy your mm -hmm. service versus competitor mm -hmm. X? I think the last uh, I checked, there's like over a thousand uh, MSSPs in mm -hmm. North America. That's mm -hmm. a lot of potential yeah. competition. Absolutely. So uh, doing more of the same is going to probably put you into more of the same. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think understanding kind of your differentiation, because I get there's a lot, there's not a ton of IP out there and that we're, re, you know, creating something that's never existed. But what's your differentiator in terms of the value you bring? And I know that obviously, you know, in working with you folks, it's really honing into the experience and the dark rhino experience in terms of what you bring to your clients as a unique differentiator, where are people talking about the experience and the people behind the machine? Because yes, cybersecurity is needed. And to your point, there's a lot of companies they could buy it from, but why people go with dark rhino is because of the experience on the back end. And so it's like understanding that as a differentiation where I don't know if people lean into that enough because I, in terms of understanding what their key differentiators are. I would agree with you completely uh, on that. So I, I got to ask, um, mm -hmm. you know, you, someone with your skill set, you could have gone on to a very successful career in sales. You could have, mm -hmm. you could have said, well, you know what, I'm going to go work <laughs> at Microsoft or Palo Alto or yeah. IBM, have your pick, right? Why do entrepreneurship? Why why go from a steady paycheck to the potential of no paycheck at all? So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> because that's all actually a reality, right? And so, you know what? I think being, firstly, I wanted to make sure I understood the business um, before I ventured off and did anything. I think early on, I always knew I wanted to have my own business. So that was something I always knew. I always kind of felt that. 
I think that became a little more, a bit more truer as I spent time with, you know, very successful seasoned entrepreneurs, um, you know, like Robert Urchbeck, like George Frampong, who's the co-founder of that business, um, like the other gentleman who I worked for, um, you know, after um, and went to a small company called NCI and, and helped that business grow and then later but I think if the common theme there quickly if you haven't caught it was all of the you know successful men all of the successful gentlemen that I've worked for right. <laughs> never never woman <laughs> and I and I don't know why that is um, but it's tended to, to that throughout my career that was the experience and I felt that kind of leaning into the differentiation piece that I spoke to quickly, I was saying, you know, there's not a lot of women in this space. Um, and I think, you know, I carved out a niche in terms of kind of the hunter mentality understand in cyber, because there's not a lot of women in cyber, as we know. Um, and then, you know, I said, I, I, I kind of found a value prop where I could add value to companies who don't necessarily have that skill set. Um, and I just decided to to go for it because I felt that I I learned from the best. I you know took away what I needed to take away from it, um, and now it was time to you know do it do it for myself. And so that's why I kind of pivoted. For you to go out there as a as a woman and as a hunter woman more specifically uh, on the sales and marketing side, that is that is an accomplishment and an achievement. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you know and I. And I think I didn't really quickly for you, Minoja, didn't really notice the being a, you know, women in tech or women in cyber. That didn't become a reality for me until I started my own business. So here's what I mean by that. Yeah. Organizations that I worked for, interestingly enough, the leadership that I had never made me feel um, as a minority in the group and were giving me the, the, the same amount of opportunities that my men counterparts were given. So I never felt that, oh, I'm a woman, I'm disadvantaged, or I'm somebody who's not getting as much opportunity or they're not taking me as seriously. That wasn't true in the first part of my career. I never really felt that. As I started my own business and started to venture off and have conversations with CEOs and founders of organizations to buy into my business as a woman, then the dynamic started to change a little bit. And that's really? when I start, yeah, that's when I started to realize, oh, okay. Um, so being, so, so this is a bit of a disadvantage for me because before it didn't, it wasn't true. It didn't exist. So, so tell me a little bit about that dynamic, expand on that thought. What, yeah. what changed, what do you think is different than what challenge, because of being a woman, what are some of the challenges you face that yeah. I might not face or somebody else may not face? For sure. I think the major piece was as I, as I kind of dug into it and really recognized it, I think, yes, I was in senior roles as a director of sales for, you know, certain, uh, a, a patch or a certain you know geography but it always dotted line back to you know a man in terms of a ceo of, of or or somebody who was leading the organization so the customer was still signing off on yes doing business with me but there was that you know corporate comfort touch of a man that disappeared when i started my own business because i'm the ceo and founder and so i think that started to be something that you know, is, wasn't as prevalent um, or, or isn't as prevalent now more that I've built more of a reputation. But when I first started, it was something that I could tell, uh, I think just naturally, because in business, I think women aren't taken as seriously for whatever reason. I think they're just not taken as seriously um, as men, even though, you know, 63, I think it was 63 or 64% of, of women owned businesses are 
just as likely to IPO and get acquired and succeed if given capital. Um, but yet we're not. And so, I mean, I could go on and on, but we're going to move on. <laughs> but no, that's, I mean, those, but those are just... all valid points because we do want to, we feel very strongly that there should be more representation of women uh, and of other diversified groups as well. If you're seeing that dynamic take place where mm -hmm. there is a difference between men and women, uh, how would you suggest to other women out there to maybe overcome some of these hurdles that they may encounter that uh, their male counterparts won't? What, yeah, what yeah. would be your thoughts there? Yeah, and I think, you know, for women, I mean, there is a difference in terms of the, for, from a perception perspective. I want to say from a perception perspective, there's a difference between how business or how women and men are viewed in business. From a capabilities perspective, I don't think there's a difference. Uh, from an attitude perspective, I don't think there's a difference. I right. think from a from a perception, um, there, there, there's a difference in that women are seen as emotional um, or you know can't be um, you know can't be in charge of large teams or don't make or aren't as good at critical thinking, which I think is completely false. I think these are just myths that float around. And people have bought into uh, them, but I think you know if I could leave anything with women. Um, you know, who are looking to kind of advance their career, I would say a few things. Number one, I think it's important to, to actually be yourself um, where, and not try to fit into a mold of what you think you should do. And I think I, I fell into that trap early on. It didn't last long. Uh, it lasted maybe a couple of months where I thought, oh, I have to look this way. I have to dress this way. I have to talk this way because that's professional and that's what's going to make people think I'm serious. But what I realized and I, and I, and I learned this at the Hirschbeck Group was impact isn't heard it's felt so if you want to make an impact let your actions show that you can add value and then everybody will take you seriously and so i i kind of leaned into that to say as a woman it, it's it's kind of getting in your mindset to say use being a woman number one is your advantage in that in cyber and in tech because there's not a lot of you so it's already a differentiation number right. one and then number two less overcompensating in your own mind and more just showing your value um, and what you can bring to the table. And then in turn, that will make people take you seriously. Yes, you'll have to work a little harder than your male counterparts because there you have to get over that perception wall. But once you show value, like nobody cares. I don't care if you're green, yellow, 12, yeah. 16, 25, like it doesn't matter. If you're if you're showing value, you're showing value. And let's continue. And so I think that's important for women to, to lean into. Um, is making sure that you're showing value, less talking, more doing, and 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 once you do, then you'll show everybody that you're you're to be you know reckoned with. It's very interesting that you independently make this comment because on last week's podcast <laughs> we ha we had Karen Huff on. Mm -hmm. uh, Karen's a CEO and she's a very successful best-selling author mm -hmm. um, of Improv Edge, and she one of the tenets of her theme is that you should be very comfortable with yourself and be sure. yourself. Yes, yes. And, and uh, if you are yourself, as uncomfortable as that may be to you, to you on your own because of what you <laughs> described, you know, there's a perception that I got to dress a certain way, act a certain way, mm -hmm. do XXX a certain way. Um, mm -hmm. That's not going to benefit you. But if you are yourself, yeah. it's going to carry you a long way. And I think uh, maybe that is the first step in getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Exactly. The first 
be yourself to begin with because that's yeah. that may be discomfortable for some people for some for sure for sure for sure but i think just being your authentic self is important because it'll allow you to um number one not have to carry on some kind of facade that eventually you're going to get bored of yourself <laughs> um, and, and, and 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 people are going to call you out on it uh, eventually because it can't go on forever so i think you should just 100 percent be yourself and um you know and, and people who are interested in in working with you or how, helping you will and if they're not then they're not and that's okay because there's a lot more opportunity out there so uh, agreed I, that, that's a very, very uh, positive way to, to look at things. So I'm going to ask you, like in this uh, different dynamic between men and women, um, yeah. especially as you are approaching a lot of other CEOs and executives out there, mm -hmm. is there a difference in the way men and women negotiate? I think, you know, for me, um, you know, I've always been somebody who, again, was at least given the platform to be myself. And then I kind of leaned into that all, all the way in terms of, I think I had this conversation with you before, like the way that I kind of communicate or articulate myself is sometimes branded as, you know, forward um, or direct, where if a man were to communicate that way, you know, it's just like, oh, you know, Johnny's the best. He's just sold the deal. <laughs> He's a great guy. Um, where if I do it, it's, it can be perceived as something negative. Um, and where I think that's where you have to get to a level with yourself to say, I'm going to be who I am genuinely. Um, and if people are attracted to that and they're okay with that dialogue, then fantastic. And if they're not, that's okay too. Um, then we're going to move on. But I, I'm not going to change the way that I communicate. I think women, the perception again is that women feel that they need to be a little bit softer or a little more handholdy um, during the process because they don't want to come off as being um, bitchy. Or I don't know if I can say that. Right. You can say that <laughs> on, on here. <laughs> don't want to be viewed as is nope. being, you know. No, um, no, you can you can say that, that on this show. That's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, given that tag, where I think it's important to say, hey, if, if if a man were to do that, would he be labeled? No. So then I just have to continue on my path, um, and you know, bulldoze whoever out of the way uh, if they don't like it, and that's and that's just you know, is what it is. So, you know, there's, uh, you've probably heard that old adage, you know, uh, entrepreneurship or business is 100% perspiration and 1% lady luck, right? <laughs> given, what, <laughs> given what you have experienced, do you think that that's actually in a, a real equation for success or would you tilt things a little differently there? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I, you know, I think luck is one of those things that uh, it's very controversial topic, right? Because, and I've been called lucky a lot in my life from people who didn't necessarily understand me or know my background or know my story. And I, and, and I'm not a big fan of the word luck because I think that luck is one of those things that, um, you know, happens to people after the work's been put in. Right. So I think you have to put in the effort and the energy and the work to your point before luck comes. So I'm not a big believer in, in um, luck and fluff. It's just my perception um, or my opinion, I guess. But in terms of, you know, work ethic, I think people don't understand um, the amount of you know, effort and time that goes into building a business and goes into entrepreneurship. I think it's kind of the sexy, fun thing to do right now, especially within the millennial group. And I can say that because I'm a millennial. Okay. <laughs> so, I can, I, so I'll say that. 
um, in that I think it's kind of the fun thing to do, it's the cool thing to do, but not truly understanding behind the scenes of what it actually means. And I think that's a group of people on, on two sides. I wanna say something, because I'm experiencing this now, even bringing on people to my business and throughout the summer we had like an inter internship program and brought people in and and what's interesting is about the millennial group and god love them because i'm a part of it but oh boy sometimes <laughs> this this group this special group um you know has a very different perception of the workplace uh and of value than you know i do just because and i had the opportunity to grow up grow up i say or you know uh, in terms of from a work perspective, from so, a work perspective. Please, please, please do tell in more detail. Also, <laughs> this is fun one for me too. But yeah, so I had the opportunity, obviously, working at you know the Hertzbeck Group at NCI at such a young age and kind of coming up. I wasn't given, you know, the millennial thing wasn't really a thing at that point um, in terms of you know being aware of the tap on the shoulder and the validation and the making people feel good and all of those fun things. <laughs> <laughs> which which I think are important, but I don't think is something that is 90% of the employer's, um, you know, responsibility. This is this is my take on it. I think millennials as a whole, I think validation is important, promotion is important, pay increases at an exorbitant rate <laughs> right. are important. And I think if I could give any advice to this millennial group trying to excel in their career and or in entrepreneurship, I think to my point earlier about adding value, um, you know, I never got uh, a raise that I asked for ever. I was given raises because of my work effort in terms of the value that I brought to the table. And so in my career, and I'm not saying that's for everybody, I'm just making it clear that when I showed value, I was being brought in to, you know, the CEO's office and, and, and given increases. It wasn't right. the reverse. And I think, um, that's something that the millennial group needs to be aware of. I'm not saying you need to copy that verbatim, but I'm just saying it's important to show value um, to the organization that you're working for before you know we're, before the ask list comes out. Um, and that's something that I'm even within my own business having fun with. And so, so it's. Uh, <laughs> I was well, you know. So I guess I, I'll say the politically incorrect thing here. Do you do you think that there's a sense of entitlement maybe in that demographic? completely there's a complete sense of entitlement and within the millennial and the gen z group and again and i'm saying this as i i am part of the millennial group and not the like i'm in the mid-tier so i i i feel good about saying this and that i i'm living it but i also am experiencing it as starting a business and i and i think you know that group has to do themselves some favors um in, in that you know prove your value through your work and show bring some you know something to the table um, before raising your hand and asking for, for additional things, because that in and itself will be such a differentiator that the businesses that you're working for will naturally, you know, have, if they're smart, uh, will have you excel and succeed because you're less of a headache. I think, you know, what I was given too as, as a point of um, advice early on in my career is, do, do you know how, um, you know, you know you're adding value, Dakota? Do you know how you're, you're making life easier? Is if, um, you and I aren't constantly talking and you don't need my constant guidance, then you're adding value to my life. But if I'm constantly talking to you, there's a problem. <laughs> so that's that, a very I, good way to look at it. <laughs> you know, I actually hadn't thought of it that way, but that, that is, 
that's a new perspective. That's a new, yeah. And I think if you're just saving, you know, people time, saving money, you know, saving money, saving time, saving headaches, then if you're doing that, it's like I, I say this to some of the people that I bring on too. It's like it's less of the, the you know, the 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 intangibles. It's more about the intangibles than the tangibles for me because I can teach you how to A B C D and the list goes on, but I can't teach you how to work hard, how to show up on time, and how to not be a headache. Like I can't teach you those things. <laughs> those are those are core. <laughs> Either you have them or you don't. That right? you uh, what you are saying uh, is exactly pretty much to a T some of the words that have been uttered in our board meetings. You know, like we we want to we can teach somebody a skill. Yes. Right. We can't teach someone how to behave. Yes. And have those soft skills of yes. being likable, interactive, motivated, yes. honest, dependable. Yes. You either, those skills are inside of you and they're a part of who you are as a being. Yes. Or they're not. And, yes, exactly. uh, and, and in a high tech business, uh, and especially, I, I would say we're kind of maturing out of that startup stage. Um, mm -hmm now but we still don't have the energy or the time as an executive team to micromanage everybody that exactly in fact it becomes uh it, it does become a huge effort if you have to micromanage someone it's not a it, it's not a fun place to be you don't want team members that you have to micromanage you want people to be independent and if they can get that sense of direction and then they go off on their own Yep. Rock and roll. Then you've exactly. got a team. Now you've got a band and you can make music and you're going to be successful. Exactly. You don't. And you are trying to uh, manage every aspect of human behavior and interaction with your client set in the market. I think uh, you'll be exhausted and you'll probably die before the finish line is ever reached you know? <laughs> exactly. it's just not gonna happen yeah yeah agree <laughs> i mean this kind of and it's um it's interesting you know you've described a few things here and, and i'm going to try and from memory here talk about it you know you know impact should be felt that that's a key thing mm -hmm. right add value yeah. you know be yourself mm -hmm. you know, you know be comfortable with tackling the uncomfortable. There should be no, you know, failure is shouldn't be looked upon as a uh, as an end all and be all. Exactly. If something goes wrong, it goes wrong. Get up and move on. Right? Yeah. And then I look at the name of your company, Equation <laughs> Sales. So <laughs> is that uh, give us a little insight? Is this the equation in Equation Sales or? What's the ideation behind this? Sure, sure, yeah. And listen, and I wish, hey, if I had the secret sauce to success, <laughs> I'd be a multi-multi-billionaire with a B. Um, you know, so today I don't have that. But I think what we're doing as a company is working towards a framework uh, to solve what we call our clients' effectiveness equation. Because I think, you know, to truly enable scale, uh, you need some type of process right uh in place to, to truly enable scale and what i mean by that is so that not just dakota and manoj can go and do it it's that you know sarah dan mike everybody on your team can go and do it 
Um, and how do you give them the resources to do that? It's by learning quickly in a competitive marketplace, because obviously, as you mentioned, there's you know a million and one uh, other MSSPs out there. So how do you learn quickly and pivot to kind of get, gain market share? And so really at, at Equation Sales, what we're looking to do is find out um, you know, what we call is your effectiveness equation. So, you know, E equals effectiveness equals what you're saying to the market. So your messaging, your content, your materials, your value prop, plus how you say it, meaning the method of delivery. So is it through email, through call, through LinkedIn, social, all those fun things, or a combination of all, divided by the decision maker, meaning who you're saying it to as a business, who are you talking to? Was it directors of ITC, so CIOs, et cetera? And then squared, meaning the cadence, of how many touch points it takes to get a yes, but equally, uh, you know, how many touch points does it take to get a no? Because no's are also important that nobody likes to talk about in sales, but getting a no is just as valuable to me so that I can equally, you know, quickly pivot to, to, to get the yes. And so that's what we're doing, you know, for tech companies layer down cyber, um, because we have a, a skill set in cyber uh, companies, that's really what our focus is. So. I, let's trade some statistics here. How many <laughs> how many touch points do you think it takes to get? In your experience, does it take to t get a yes? And and I'll share our our yeah yeah <laughs> real world so, example with that. And it's great because so for our obviously for our business, like we're a sales and marketing company, so our outreach is fundamentally different than obviously you know Dark Rhinos would be, right. um, and some other organizations. But in general, I want to say in you know in in tech that's. Broad, so let's go cyber. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing kind of across the board is about you know five to seven touch points um, in order. And let's let's define a yes. Is yes like yes to a meeting or is yes um, I'm signing a deal? Like I'm saying just, yes to signing a deal. Yes to signing a deal. Hmm. So yeah, let's cyber. I'd say for a lot of our clients across the board, that's like mid teens. So twelve um to 14 15 touch points and here's what i mean by that bdr so starting at the beginning of the sales cycle from like right. you know finding the lead list reaching out to somebody sending an email doing a cold call getting him on the phone or getting him on a linkedin messenger email after you do that do a demo and so here's where a lot of companies go wrong in the demo process this is my opinion and even i've like because i buy software all the time like for our company right and it oh my goodness the dragging of the feet like i'm raising my hand saying i want to buy i want to buy and i'm interested in buying and the amount of i think just procedural like steps they make me go through i have to do a 15-minute discovery call and then i have to do a 30-minute demo and then after that i have to do part two of the demo with a sales engineer and then i have like over complicate the process um, in a lot of respects, and I know in cyber, obviously there's some things that are a lot more technical, so it might re require those additional touch points. But I think the other thing where companies go wrong are salespeople, particularly in cyber, because who you're reaching out to are stakeholders that are CIOs and CSOs and they're busy oh, right. and their dates could change the next day. So it's setting the touch point on the phone live with them is to say, okay, we're in this demo, but the next time we're gonna do a proposal review as an example, is gonna be next Thursday, does that work for you? And then book the time live. Because if you get off and do the email back and forth, like then you're gonna wait. I agree, you know, yeah. and I'll tell you, in, in our business, our experience has been, on average, it's about 24 touch points to get it. 24, okay, okay. Get, okay, now, okay. That's, that's from very beginning, that is, from I'm going to count that from the first 
uh, BDR action, whether that was an email sent or a okay. call made or whatever happened. Are you counting like emails back and forth in that? Yes. Okay, got it. So it's like more granular. Well, well, okay. But I'm going to group emails, like emails on a particular topic. But typically, we've seen 24, and I think that we could actually take easily a half a dozen steps out of that. For sure. Uh, and I think part of that is salespeople are afraid to ask the hard questions. Because mm -hmm. people yes. are don't like hearing no. And and I personally, like uh, just today, uh, yeah. this morning, I took a sales call from a company that does uh, lead lists and, and things mm -hmm. of that nature. And there's a billion of them out there. <laughs> right. The, 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 you can't, I don't know how many people out there do that work. But uh, <laughs> but I took the call because the guy was very professional. You know, he, he yeah. reached out to me on LinkedIn and yeah. he said, look, I kind of get from looking at your website and some of the customers you're advertising, this is kind of your customer space. Yeah. And I think I have a unique approach for your customer space. Okay. All right. Yeah. Right. So I took the call, but the thing was, we got right to the end point. I said, mm -hmm. he had this PowerPoint deck and all this. I was like, dude, I don't got the time for this. No. Right. Yeah. And I know yeah. you're going to feel bad that your company went through all this trouble to create the logo and the PowerPoint and all these great things. Yeah. Tell me, get to the heart of this matter. If I do business with you, mm -hmm. what will change for me tomorrow? Exactly. And he was exactly. not expecting that question. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I love that question. That's great. You know, he just was not expecting that. And I said, you should go in. And if I was him, I would have turned around and asked me some very difficult questions. I exactly. Said, shot. Let's, <laughs> you know, let, yeah. let's have this conversation now. And I would open the door to him. But um, it misfired a little bit. And, and sure. I think that is an example of salespeople. I don't know why. They, maybe, again, it's oh my God, what if they say no? And what if I only have five sales cycles going and now I don't have uh, enough yeah. people? But you got to ask those. I would say ask the hard, ugly questions. Immediately. As quickly as no, possible in the sales possible. And the sales, and it's so funny you say that. So quick, quick story. I, I missed my first uh, president's club, my first year at the Herd Direct Group. I missed quota. Okay. And it was devastating. I was so pissed off. I got to watch everybody go to Dominican Republic, all expenses paid trip. Um, and I was like like 15 or 12 points off of quota. It was something stupid. And I had deals in the pipeline to get me over. Why I didn't, as you know, everybody came back, you know, tanned and uh, excited in January. And I got to sit down with my uh, with my boss at the time, who's the co-founder of the Hertzbeck Group, George. And we sat down and we went through, you know, why did you miss quota? like what, what was going on. And it was very simple. It was to your point. I was afraid at the time, it was my first year in sales to ask the hard questions. Why I was afraid is because I thought, oh, I don't want to piss anybody off. And I want I want them to like me and, you know, all of these things where now I'm, you know, it's the complete opposite of that in terms of my approach. But I think when I look at, you know, what George said to me, and I've, I've leaned into this throughout my career for salespeople is, if a client is or a prospect is interested in doing business with you and they're serious, there's nothing you can say to them. Nothing you can say outside of insulting them, right? There's nothing you could say to them, no question you could ask to deter them from doing business with you. 
And if you ask a question like, Mr. Customer, can you sign this deal on Friday or Monday? What works better? And they get pissed off. They weren't serious from the beginning. And so move on. And right. so that's all it was. It was like just understanding if somebody's serious about doing business with me, like if somebody's serious about dating me, they're not going to be pissed <laughs> off that I asked them a simple question. Right? right. Like it's just if they're serious, they're either they're serious well, you or hope. <laughs> you would hope. Or if they're if but if they if they if they drop you and they move on, then you're like, ah, that wasn't really serious anyways. Who cares? So I think it's important as a salesperson to to ask those questions. That's another thing Robert would talk about a lot. You're a salesperson. They know you're there to sell them something. It's not a mystery. <laughs> like right. it's not a mystery. They know you're there to sell them something. Sell it, ask for the sale, and if they say no, move on. Like it's it because there's a lot of opportunity out there. And so I think that's something that stuck with me and and why we've been able to grow as a business because we're we're not spending time with people who aren't serious. We're moving on. And, and and I think that's why. I that is a, a very good bit of advice. Thank Ask you. the hard <laughs> question and move the heck on. Exactly. One of the things that I have seen at least now having mm -hmm. been a part of five different startups mm -hmm. is that there's a lot of companies that probably do themselves a disservice by even having a sales team to begin with. They're not ready sure. for it. I agree with you 100% there. And I think it's one of those things, particularly in, in, in cybersecurity, like I find this quite interesting because there's very eager to kind of get the salespeople in. Um, I think prematurely, and I've seen this a lot with our with existing clients as well as prospects and people in the industry that I know that have businesses. I think it's one of those things where cybersecurity firms or just tech firms have to, in some ways, you know, eat their own dog food. In that, you know, you're asking businesses to outsource their cybersecurity because it's not core to them; <laughs> it's not right. their core competency. So outsource, um, you know, your sales and marketing, and that it's not core and integral to your business. You don't need to bring it in-house. It's not needed, at least initially, at least initially. And over time, I think it'll be appropriate as you bring in revenue, but I think that's where they make a mistake. And moreover, you can outsource for cheaper and get somebody else to learn for you so that when you do bring somebody in, they're not banging their head up against the wall, not knowing what to right. do. They're actually actioning things. That's where people go wrong. And that's where, from a, from a sales and marketing perspective, that's a lot, a lot of the learning, which is, annoying time consuming but needed that's what we a lot of what we take on for clients is that piece so that when they're ready it's like oh there you go and then we can work with you on other things so i think that's a, an area that's that's required well dakota i mean th that's uh you're absolutely right and i can at least we can personally comment to that fact that uh you do a good job of that so uh thank you appreciate it we're we're appreciative of that but thank you. any uh, any parting words, any sure. last thoughts that you would want to sure, sure. for our listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we talked a, a bit today in terms of entrepreneurship and women in business or women in cyber as well. I think, you know, uh, there's a woman who I've been following recently, uh, Teresa Paint, and I don't know if you know who that is. I, um, I, I'm not familiar with her. Okay. So she's the CEO of this company called Fort Alice. She was the former CIO at the White House during the George okay. W. Bush administration. So a very senior person in cybersecurity. But you and I, pre this call, were uh, not very aware of her. And why is that? I think there is a lot of women in cybersecurity 
but we're maybe not as privy to the information because they're not cropped it up as much. And so I would say to women who are looking to get into cybersecurity, I think there are quite a bit of, of women in the space. So don't be um, deterred by thinking, oh, it'll only be me. I think there are, and it's becoming more prevalent. And it's, it's a market that, like, let's look at coronavirus as an example, not to talk about it, but just quickly, cybersecurity in this industry is something that is, you know, recession and pandemic proof. It will never go away. It'll only grow. And what a time to be in cybersecurity. Um, so I think if, if there's, you know, an industry that you are sitting down thinking about what I could potentially get into, this is such a, a great industry in terms of growth opportunity. Um, and then separately, I would just say, you know, with only like seven, you know, percent of, of, of there being women CEO, uh, like heads of uh, Fortune 500 companies in North America, only 7%. So there's a long way to grow and a long way to go. But I would say, you know, I want to thank, obviously, the folks at Dark Rhino for, for uh, partnering with me at Equation Sales as a, as a CEO, woman founder. And I think you guys are, you know, in, for, for, from that cause, um, you know, obviously uh, allies and obviously advocates for, and buying into uh, the fact that women can, can do what men do too. And so I, I appreciate that. Um, and uh, looking forward to, you know, continuing to work with you guys. But uh, yeah, that's it. I just want, you know, thank you for the time. And I think for anybody who wants to chat, they can always connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for your, for having me today. Well, thank you for being here. And we're going to put uh, the connections to your LinkedIn profile and to your company in the description. All Fantastic. Right. Thank you so much.